was Bond. James Bond. Japanese proverbs say, bird never make nest in bear tree. Just a slight stiffness coming on. Your cellos are Stradivarius. I'm just up here at Oxford, brushing up on a little Danish. You know what I can do with my little finger. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Roger Moore's Cubbyhole, episode number seven. Interestingly, I read somewhere that most new podcasts die and never upload again after their seventh episode. But rest assured, that won't be happening here. We'll be babbling on about Bond, James Bond, for many episodes to come. We begin with our usual plug of social media. Do get in touch with the show. We always love hearing from you on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us under our full show title or on Twitter under the handle More Cubby. Also, just to let you know, we are now available on a wider range of podcasting platforms on the one we upload to, which is called Podomatic, as well as being a new addition in the directories of Google Podcasts, Acast, and Stitcher. So plenty of options to help you stay up to date with our latest content. Whichever podcast library you are using, do consider giving us a review. A little click of the five stars would be very much appreciated. I noticed this week we're doing quite well in Italy, Portugal, and New Zealand. So a special thanks to our listeners there. Now, in our last episode, we discussed Bond number six on Her Majesty's Secret Service alongside special guest Nick, and we discussed our largely positive impressions of an emotional, realistic, and action-packed adventure, as well as George Lazenby's surprisingly nuanced portrayal of Bond showing a different side to the character in his one and only outing as 007. But today's episode is certainly a gear shift we're taking a look at Bond number seven. Diamonds are forever. Of course, the return of Sean Connery. So with me to discuss, it's the usual hosting dream team. Firstly, it's the man who's never been called a dirty double-crossing limey fink, but that's because he deals only in genuine diamonds. It's Adam. How are you, Adam? What did you make of our last episode? And what are your hopes and fears for this one? Thank you very much, Martin. Hello, everyone. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed the last episode. I was always very nervous um, to get up to On a Majesty's Secret Service because it's a film I love so much and have so much respect for. But thanks uh, to ourselves and, of course, to our guest uh, last week, Nicholas Broadstock, uh, I think we did a great job of it. I think we really got to the heart of why that film's so great. Diamonds Are Forever, a totally different prospect. I have uh, lots of fears going forward talking about this one but I guess uh, we'll talk uh, more about those when we get into it. Incidentally, Martin, did you remember which uh, specific line of Coleridge poetry it was that you used on a date uh, way back when? You sort of mentioned this last week, having, uh, similarly to Tracy on Blofeld, having tried to use a line of poetry to romance someone. Did you remember what exact line it was? Uh, No, I didn't. And I didn't think about it until you just mentioned it again now. Uh, We'll leave our listeners guessing. It's okay. We'll we'll go back to it every week until you've remembered it. We've we've got another, you know, 20 odd episodes at least. So it's fine. Okay, very good. And uh, secondly, uh, it's the man who goes around speaking German whenever he visits the Netherlands just to fit in. It's Phil. How's it going, Phil? Yes, thank you very much, Martin. All is very well, thank you. Um, I said, much like Adam, I enjoyed last week's show, um, and I think Nick brought a lot to the um, the insight with the, the cinematography and the filming. 
Um, obviously, as we've already mentioned, this week is a bit of a different prospect. Um, I would just really quickly like to say thank you to everybody that's been getting in contact with us on our social media channels. We've had a lot of interaction um, from fellow Bond fans, so thank you to everybody that's been both sending kind words about the podcast and that's been getting involved with our um, Twitter polls and our Facebook and Instagram. We have been running our sort of Blofeld the best of poll on Twitter this week and Telly Savalas has been the runaway leader so far. I'm very pleased with that. I thought I was going to be coming from a difficult uh, argument there, arguing that Savalas is better than Pleasance when you two were all, oh no, Donald Pleasance, he's much better. He's from Worksop. He's the best one. I think the fact that Dr. Evil parodied Pleasance's Blofeld so much has, has been a deciding factor in the argument, to be fair. Well, yeah, I don't begrudge Savalas the victory there. <laughs> Great song, if you made it to the end of last episode. If I could paint a picture, would it be a thousand words? So diamonds are forever. This was the swan song of Connery as Bond, if we don't count, which we won't count, never say never again. So uh, firstly, we'll go over to uh, Adam and Alan with the film synopsis. Thank you very much. So yes, Diamonds Are Forever, the seventh James Bond film based on the fourth James Bond novel. It's the earliest of the books to be written that we've adapted so far. Guy Hamilton, who we last saw directing Goldfinger, returns to the director's chair. This is the first of three films in a row that he's going to direct in the series. And most famously, George Lazenby broke his contract. He declined to return to the role of Bond which ultimately meant that Sean Connery was lured back with an unprecedented at the time offer of $1.25 million and two films of his choice by United Artists, the distributor, to return to the role, officially, of course, for the last time. So Diamonds Are Forever was released in December 1971, so still 17 years before Pierce Brosnan's breakout performance in the action classic Taffin. Then maybe you shouldn't be living here! Diamonds Are Forever was made for $7.2 million and goes on to gross $116 million. So much more successful than on a Majesty's Secret Service. Still a little bit behind Thunderball and You Only Live Twice, but not by an awful lot. And critically, this has the, had the reverse response that on a Majesty's Secret Service had. At the time, it was hugely praised for bringing a whole new, more humorous tone to the series. But for more modern critics, that's the very same reason why it's not perhaps held in such a high regard. So, to learn what happens in it, as always, here's Alan Partridge. Sean Connery's back down the gun barrel. Bang! Blood dribbles down. Bond throws an Asian ventriloquist through a wall, punches a Moroccan gambler in the face, and whips a lady's bikini top off to find Blofeld, who he boils alive in a random indoor lava pool. Welcome to hell, Blofeld. Cuba Bassi, the diamonds are forever. M bores Bond with Electra on diamonds and sends him after a smuggling ring. We're all getting creatively bumped off by two gay hitmen. If God wanted man to fly, Mr. Went, he would have given him wings, Mr. King. Bond impersonates Peter Franks to meet the brassy, blonde, sorry, brunette, sorry, redhead smuggler, Tiffany Case. Well, as long as the collars and cuffs match. But the red-faced real Peter Franks escapes from being inept MI6 and Bond puts him and the lift out of order. Bond's nearly cremated smuggling the real diamonds into Las Vegas until Shady Tree, the USA's answer to Bernard Manning, saves him. You dirty double-crossing limey think those goddamn diamonds are phonies. At mysterious mogul Willard White's casino, people are getting off all over the place, including a random broad Bond picks up playing craps. I'm plenty. But of course you are. Tiffany passes the real diamonds to a crazy scientist with a desert laboratory. 
by barely escaping a moon buggy. If you see a mad professor in a minibus, just smile. Outrun Vegas's most inept cops, and Bond breaks into Willard White's office to find two bloody Blofelds. He shoots the wrong one, right idea, but wrong pushy, and narrowly escapes being buried alive by Winton Kidd. Bond rescues Willard White, a cross between Jimmy Stewart and Donald Trump, from the clutches of Bambi and Thumper, a pair of ultimate fighting champion gymnasts. But they're too late. Bloody Blowers has kidnapped Tiffany and used the diamonds to build a boob-shaped space laser. Bond and Willard White discover Blowers' oil rig base totally by accident. Baha! I don't have anything in Baha! And Tiffany ruins Bond's plan to switch the tapes controlling the laser. You stupid twitcher, put the real one back in. Helicopters attack. Bond plays hook-a-duck with Blower's getaway sub, and he and Tiffany have a romantic cruise home. Only Winton Kidd, disguised as claret-ignorant waiters, wheel in an exploding trifle. Bond turns Kidd into a human kebab, blows up Mr. Wimp with his own cake, and puts Tiffany off proposing. The end. Lovely. Summary there from Adam and uh, excellent description by uh, Alan at the end as well. So uh, Diamonds Are Forever, this one, as we mentioned, a very different film, a different tone from the previous on Her Majesty's. I remember last week I said I didn't really know where to start. We started at the beginning, the cinematography of uh, On Her Majesty's. Uh, this week I don't, also don't know where to start, but for different reasons. Uh, it's just a bit of a mess, this film. Firstly, I would say the film would have been better with Sheriff J.W. Pepper, in my opinion. I think that tells you my thoughts on the film. Uh, but where should we start? Where do you want to start, Adam? You're right. I think to give this one, first of all, we should say, with one exception, there are no rubbish Bond films. They're all entertaining and have lots of merit in their own right. But some are worse than others. And for me, this has always been one of the weaker ones. I think for me the issue with it is it's very much a transitional film in the series. It's not a thriller anymore. They're not trying to make thrillers. They're trying to make romps. So they're trying to be much more entertaining than comedic and camp. And this is in a particularly tight spot because on the one hand it has to close the story arcs from the previous installments, most specifically the fact that Blofeld is still out there at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And of course we need to bring the whole Spectre arc that was running through all the Connery films to a close. But also, there's this new tone, this new camp, much more humorous tone that the producers are clearly trying to develop in order to not be with the time anymore, but to be running slightly against the time in terms of what's happening in wider cinema and to create something that's in contrast with that. Uh, but in the process, it's a film that both fails the seriousness and the character-driven tone that Honor Majesty's Secret Service has. And it also feels slightly unusual to go for this new tone with Connery still in the role it almost feels like a dry run for what they were going to do with Roger Moore in the role. And of course, Roger Moore pulled off this, this new tone much more effectively, and it seemed to fit his portrayal of the character. But in this one, because there are a few different things going on, it's a little bit chaotic. And for me, it just never quite all comes together. Yeah, I'd have to agree, Adam. For me, this really is carry-on diamond smuggling. I mean, I know we've mentioned before that some of the films are starting to get a little bit silly, but this is peak silliness i mean my mum always told me you know if you never got any if you haven't got anything kind to say don't say anything at all and i think this may be the shortest podcast in history because i am really struggling to find any sort of redeeming feature 
you have to look at the fact that Guy Hamilton returns to direct this film. And I know that a lot of the budget was taken up by Sean Connery's enormous fee for the film. But how did they get it so wrong? I mean, were they kind of sleepwalking into the editing room every day? Because the amount of errors and the amount of problems that are seen with it. And I know that there are issues with the fact that Honor Majesties didn't get a great response to the American audiences and to an extent, they were kind of pandering to America with this film because obviously a lot of it is set in Vegas and a lot of the content is designed towards more of the American market and it, it was a bit more commercially successful than Honor Majesties. But it's just, it's littered with faults and it's, it's just cringeworthy in certain points. Yeah, you don't need to worry about it being short, Phil. We can find the comedy gold. There is a lot of it to, to delve into. Should we move to Blofeld? What did we think about him? So if we were really following on from On Her Majesties, we would expect uh, a very serious Bond trying to take revenge. Uh, we do get that revenge, but it's, uh, it's not a particularly great payoff. And of course, we find out that uh, Blofeld is making copies of himself. I'm, I'm in two minds over first the opening sequence, where of course we do, in a sense, wrap up the story from Honor Majesty's Secret Service. There is a sense that it's much more vicious, or at least trying to be tougher and trying to be quite a nasty and quite a brutal and grimly violent conclusion to a very, not so much grieving as enraged Bond, returning to take vengeance upon the man who murdered his wife. Um, and there are some really quite grim deaths in that sequence. You know, the, the fact that Blofeld the double is boiled alive in this lava pool, you've got another guy who is literally drowned in a vat of clay, I guess, or like modeling plastic surgery liquid. There's one guy who has a load of dermatodes thrown at him. But it's sort of endemic of the problem with the whole film in, the, in that opening sequence. We also have things which are very unintentionally funny. Of course, the guy who tells Bond that the next link in the chain is in Cairo apparently seems to do so without moving his lips at all. It's fantastic. And the fact that you put in the joke of the gambler saying, hit me, and of course, Bond turns him around and hits him. The fact that we have to have uh, a female character in there who's strangled with her own bra. The, like, the opening sequence almost is endemic of why this film is so confused in general. Yeah, of course. I was, I was going to mention, Adam, obviously Charles Gray, who made the appearance as Henderson in You Only Live Twice, is obviously recast in this film. I think it is quite a shame that Lazenby didn't come back for this one because I think there would have been a much different tone to this film, even with Guy Hamilton editing, uh, sorry, and directing. And I think it is just a really big shame that they didn't make more of this film, obviously going on the back of the powerful ending of Honor Majesty's, the fact that it was, you know, an amazing way to finish that film. But yeah, the opening sequence, it kind of sets the whole film up, really. You know, the fact that, interestingly enough, the um, the man that is due to become Blofeld, the scene where he gets drowned, in, the, as Adam mentioned, in the modelling clay, they actually use mashed potato and food colouring for that scene. Now, that wouldn't have been so bad if it hadn't have been sat there under hot lights for an entire day, obviously because of filming taking so long, which then caused it to stink. So it was, it was a really horrible, foul-smelling mashed potato clay effectively that the man had to be drowned in um and yeah and just that opening sequence of the sense that blofeld gets drowned in hot lava when he's you know he's effectively the the, the worst villain of them all really 
It is, yeah, it is interesting, isn't it, with Charles Gray? Because he's a, he's a great actor and he's a fabulous actor. And as Henderson in You Only Live Twice, we were saying on a previous podcast, we wish that there were more of him, that he survives a little bit longer rather than the 30 seconds uh, in You Only Live Twice, of course, with Burt Kwok, one of a, a number of returning actors in the series. But I feel like the script and the plot really just fails Blofeld in this one. He's way too camp. I mean, the fact that he escapes the casino dressed in drag, ultimately, towards the end, and has crazy lines like, you know, right idea, wrong pussy. And then later on, when he spots the tape cassette down Tiffany Case's underwear, I think he has that line, we're showing rather more cheap than usual today, Tiffany. So he is just played all out for laughs and totally undermines what we've previously seen the character do and, and how deadly he is. There's also a line he says um, when he's explaining his plot to Bond in this one, which is that science isn't my strong suit. Really? In the previous film, you were developing these allergies and this virus that could cause pandemics and mass extinction of livestock. And now you're saying science isn't your strong suit? What is this? I know, and in, in this film, he's creating an impossible diamond laser. Even though this Blofeld is the most camp and the most inefficient and probably the, well, is the worst Blofeld. But ironically, the character causes the most destruction with the explosions of nuclear weapons in America, China, and Russia. So he seems to do mass destruction that's not really... Uh, that was the other thing I was going to mention. The plot is all over the place. And so he causes all this destruction, but we don't really seem to care about it, and no one does. Yeah, it is true. I also think um, all the villains surrounding Blofeld are rather weak in this one. Just on that satellite for a moment, it's been created by this guy, Professor Dr. Metz, who in a weird bit of dialogue is revealed to be committed to world peace. And you just think, well, hang on, at what point in time has this pacifist, is this pacifist going to realise that what he's created is being used to hold the world to ransom and detonate nuclear missiles all over the place, even towards the very end? He hasn't quite worked out what's going on. And I love the idea that Charles Gray is so camp and so seemingly non-threatening as Blofeld, but he's convinced this pacifist scientist that they're actually achieving world peace. But on non-threatening, we have to, of course, mention Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. I think the characters are excellent, and, and they're played in this really distinctive, unusual, and quite fun way by Bruce Glover and Putter Smith. But I think the problem with those characters, the two assassins who nearly kill Bond on a couple of occasions, they just don't seem to have any menace to them whatsoever. I think they're just, yes, they do create a lot of havoc in the film, let's say, and they do present Bond with, you know, life-threatening um, situations. Obviously, the scene where he's in the, the casket and you think he is going to get burned alive, and it's only because of the fact that um, Shady Trees and the, um, the manager of Slumberink um, sort of pull him out at the last second. So it's kind of, that probably is the closest that Bond gets to actually being executed in the entire series. But as you mentioned, um, Bruce Glover and Putter Smith, during filming, they actually tricked Sean Connery into making him, them think that they were actually um, gay, where they, obviously they weren't, they were just playing the camp elements of the characters. It seems like the two characters were, I think they were quite efficient up until meeting Bond. Although you could level that against most enemies of Bond across the franchise. When I was a child watching this one, I always thought Diamonds Are Forever was the worst one. And these two characters were the worst enemies. Uh, but actually going back to it more recently, I think Mr. Wint actually comes across as a bit of a psycho. I think the acting is quite good for these characters. 
maybe not for the the other one who looks like the guy from Mythbusters. He's not very good, uh, but the, the the psycho one seems to be quite good. And of course, we get him making that ridiculous noise as he's given a wedgie uh, of the bomb. There were elements of their characters that were quite convincing in terms of being henchmen, but yeah, it's it just a very. I guess it's a very tongue-in-cheek style, you know. It's even down to things like the the aftershave that uh, is it Mr. Wint that wears the aftershave. But basically, the fact that that's the only way that it gives away that he is one of the henchmen. And obviously, that's how Connery defeats them in the final scene. Well, that's of course not the only way Bond catches them out in that final scene on the cruise liner. The fact that they don't know that the Mouton Rothschild is a claret is also how Bond rumbles. They're not real cruise ship waiters and that's a lovely moment actually and there are positives in this film I would say I think there are certain sequences and certain moments which do work brilliantly well and are genuinely quite exciting and great to watch but again it's it's just this film undermining those lovely moments by the fact that in amongst that really tense moment of Mr. Wind Mr. Kid serving Bond on the ship but preparing to kill him the way in which they plan to kill him is with a bomb hidden in an exploding cake if you were going to try and get someone with an exploding trifle and not have them get suspicious about it, why would you literally call the trifle a bomb surprise? One little nod that I want to just go back to Adam's mention about M um, in the early scenes. This film does feature a lot of sort of mini in-jokes, which are quite funny. One of them being when Bond is chatting to him in the early scenes, he mentions that um, obviously Bond has been on holiday and that MI6 have been managing well without him. That's actually a little in-joke going back to Honor Majesty's, obviously the fact that Connery's been away for a film and the fact that Lazenby's kind of taken over the reins temporarily. So it was a little sort of in-joke from the director to say, you know, we've not really missed Connery in this role, but obviously we've brought him back anyway type thing. Yeah, it is true. And we should probably mention again, very specifically, that Albert R. Broccoli and Harry Saltzman didn't particularly want Connery back. They were on very fractious terms back at the end of You Only Live Twice. And it's the distributor, it's United Artists, who basically forced the decision on them because Honor Majesties had not failed at the box office, but had disappointed, shall we say, at the box office. It's United Artists who give him the huge cash sum, which incidentally he donates pretty much in its entirety to charity. He sets up, I think, two Scottish educational foundations with it and gave him his own choice of two films afterwards to make but Connery's return is interesting in this one because we have talked about the whole style of the film seems at odds with the way Connery used to play the role yet Connery does kind of go along with it quite well he's a lot more engaged in this one than he was in You Only Live Twice he's not bored at any time and he does seem to be enjoying the slightly more rompy nature of it He's enjoying all the new jokey lines of dialogue and the quips that he's getting. He's not taking it as seriously this time. But do we kind of enjoy the fact that Connery, for this official swan song, is clearly having a little bit more fun in the role? Yeah, I'd agree, Adam. I think this is probably the closest you'll ever get to him, Connery in Panto. This is, this is probably his pantomime moment, really, because it's just, you kind of, you can't really take him seriously anymore. I mean, he's, he's not really the sort of fit and healthy style Bond that we saw in Doctor No, and you know, you can kind of tell he's, he's, he's getting to middle age now. He would have been about 41 when this came out, so he's, he's not a young man, really. He's, he's kind of playing it just for the just for the laughs in many ways, and it's he's just you can tell he's just kind of doing it for the enjoyment of doing it. He's not really wanting to be there for the action, he doesn't see it as a serious project, and you can see that in the way it's put together, really. 
Yeah, I wasn't sure whether he is he turning his Scottish accent up to eleven for this film deliberately, or had his voice changed over the intervening years between the previous one. I think a lot of Sean Connery's changed in the intervening years from the previous one to pick up on Phil's point about him not being the sort of athletic, graceful, panther-like Bond that we saw back in Doctor No. I mean, he's fully toupeed, and he really has widened a little bit in this one. That My favourite scene for pure comedy value in the whole film is when Tiffany Case has come to his Vegas hotel room to try and seduce out of him the location of the real diamonds, and he's undressing for her off-camera, and you just see the look in her eyes eyeing him up supposedly, you know, full of arousal. And she has that line, there's a lot more to you than meets the eye, Mr. Franks. And then you cut to Connery hanging up his shirt and he really is waddling around at this point. He's got a lovely hairy chest, but there's a lot of him at this point. You just think, are you really making a joke with that line about his endowment? Or are you just talking about, you've really let yourself go, Sean. You didn't used to look like this. Again, I think midlife crisis probably springs to mind with this. Although, Phil, I am very pleased that you also mentioned the elevator fight scene with Peter Franks, because this is one of the scenes in the film that I think is genuinely really good and a really great fist fight. Of course, the fact that it's taking place in this confined space harkens back to From Russia With Love and the great celebrated fist fight with Red Grant. But the way that this scene is shot and scored is very interesting in that John Barry doesn't put music under it for most of the fight. Uh, it's only towards the very end when the lift's nearly at the top and he's about to kill Peter Franks, Bond's finally about to win, that John Barry introduces the score. Before that, we're looking purely at the sound effects which are amped up. So we've got that slow sound of the elevator going up and the sounds of shattering glass and punches landing on each other with this bone-crunching thud. And the sound design and the way that they withhold music in that scene is really brilliant and effective. Yeah, I think the elevator scene, that was the one that I highlighted as uh, perhaps one of the redeeming features of the film. Um, And I quite like the trivia that Joe Robinson, who plays Peter Franks, uh, apparently helped Connery in previous films with the fight scenes and accidentally knocked his toupee off in the elevator. And I really wish they'd have kept that in. I mean, that's the one joke that I would have liked to have seen. That would have been fantastic because then we wouldn't have needed the whole switching of the wallet so that Tiffany then has to identify him as James Bond through his Playboy membership card. Great that a secret agent who's meant to be hiding his identity at all times is just carrying his wallet with his Playboy membership card in it. But it would have been much easier if his toupee had just flown off. And maybe if he hadn't realised it either, so he's he's done the bit with the fire extinguisher and he sent Peter Franks over the side and kills him. And then he just turns around and Tiffany goes, hang on, you're that James Bond, you've lost your toupee. Oh crap, my hair's gone. It would have been better if it had kind of like spun round the wrong way. So it's like just this great scene where it's sort of like, it's kind of off to, off kilter. So just like trying to be dignified after killing Franks. But I think that also, that scene also leads into one of the silliest scenes of the film where Tiffany obviously sprays the whiskey glass um, to check the fingerprints. And obviously Q's developed this great fingerprint attachment for Bond so that he can replicate Peter Franks. But just the ridiculousness of a wardrobe ID scanner, the fact that it's so ridiculous, the fact that the entire wardrobe is taken up with this fingerprint scanner. Bigger than even the photocopier that Gorgeous George uses in the in the previous film. Well, presumably Tiffany doesn't have access to Q Branch and all of MI6's much more compact gadgets, so she's just going to be dependent on whoever's had this installed for her, potentially Blofeld, I guess. 
Um, I'm not sure how Tiffany reacted to that when, you know, Blofeld and his men just turn up at her apartment with a huge wardrobe fingerprint scanner. And she's like, well, how are you going to get that up in that tiny lift? I just like the idea of maybe Winton Kidd was sent with it. They'd been sent like two delivery men. They've got to haul this uh, fingerprint scanning wardrobe up three flights of stairs or whatever it is. It's a great incident, again, of Q being an absolute savant for exactly what Bond's going to need at exactly the right time, isn't it? The fact that he's previously given him one gadget, which is the fake fingerprints in order to impersonate Peter Franks. Can you imagine the discussion? Now, just in case you go and see this smuggler and she has a wardrobe-sized fingerprint scanner in her bedroom, you'll better wear these fake fingerprints. It relies on the enemies not using photographs as well. It's easier for them to have people's fingerprints on storage. And it's such a pointless gadget as well. How limited use would you have for it? Because, I mean, you can't imagine that she gets that many visitors that would need to be fingerprint ID'd. It's just like you'd only have it for one person. So it's just like you'd have it for one use and then it'd probably be completely redundant. How about the Bond women in this film? Because Tiffany, I feel, starts, you, you get the sense that maybe this is going to be a strong, empowered female character who's a, a big part of the, uh, the master plans of the enemies. Uh, and then she just turns into uh, bikini-wearing, uh, well, bimbo. And I can't think of another word, really, where she tries to shoot the gun and falls off of the platform, surely killing her. It must be quite a large oil rig. Well, I was going to say, I mean, apparently they wanted to play her as quite a brash American, because obviously this is kind of the first proper American Bond girl that we see in the series. But then it becomes, by the end of it, she becomes this sort of caricature of herself. And it's kind of, you can almost imagine if Barbara Windsor put on an American accent, she could probably have played that role. And you'd have like Sid James as the villain. And it's, it's literally just farcical the way it transitions. One of the characters I did want to mention was Plenty O'Toole because I think she gets a bit of a raw deal in it. You know, the fact we don't really see her that long and then she just gets executed by, you assume, Winton Kidd when she goes to, um, to Tiffany Case's apartment. I think it's certainly true that Plenty O'Toole is a very hard-done-by character in this. Lana would give him basically nothing to do apart from flirt with people at the craps tables, get thrown out of a window and then drown which in itself is, is problematic because, as Phil says, presumably this murder has been committed by Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd. I feel like she'd have been the victim of a deleted scene here because it's, it's only ever really implied as to why Plenty is at Tiffany Case's villa. But Wint and Kidd have already seen Tiffany Case. They know what she looks like because they've seen her on the plane when her and Bond, as Peter Franks, fly over to Las Vegas. So it's very strange that they would mistake her for Tiffany. But yeah, Lana would very hard done by. This is probably the first major speaking Bond woman character who really is nothing more than a bit of scenery. And yeah, it, it just does not work at all. I think we could broaden it out perhaps to the, the whole cast. Quite a lot of them are American. And Americans, I feel, don't get a great... They don't look very good in this film. Maybe it's something to do with the development of the characters, but the, the fact that they're... They don't seem very intelligent and we, well, the, the audience is confused as to what's happening in the plot and uh, it looks like the characters are as well. That is a really important point to make, Martin, uh, because this is the first of a 
I think five Bond films, all the ones in the 70s, which are co-written by Tom Mankiewicz, who's an American writer, and he co-writes this with Richard Maybaum, who wrote most of the previous Bond films, excluding Only Live Twice. But Mankiewicz was specifically brought in because he said the British writers don't write American characters very well, which is really strange when you consider how badly written most of the American characters are in this. You know, you, you look at everyone we've mentioned, and also the gangsters who meet uh, Bond off the plane. But I think Mankiewicz also is the guy they turn to to bring more of this comedy and to bring the one-liners and the sort of zany camp comedic setups into the film as well. And so I put a lot of the blame at his door for when the films in this period go a little bit too far into the comedy. But yeah, it's, it's true. There's just something about, maybe it's the setting, maybe it's the fact that it's Las Vegas as well, that it just feels like the American characters are very cut out and in your face and stereotypical. And that brings us nicely to another Felix Leiter. Phil, does this Felix Leiter hold a candle to Rick Van Nutter? Or Sek Linder? No, Chet Linder is your one. Oh, this, this, this Felix Leiter is an absolute abomination, in my opinion. I don't understand how we can be that inept. I mean, I know we spoke about Jack Lord in Doctor No not really doing anything, but he seems light years ahead of this lighter in terms of his own abilities it's the fact of you a let tiffany case escape from a casino where you've you've basically you've got eyes on her from every single corner and you know you can get fooled by like a really simple distraction trick that allows her to get out of a back door and it's just like even at the start when when he's in the customs department just like i'll take over here and it's just like he just doesn't fool you with any confidence at all that he actually knows what he's doing. He'd be the sort of bumbling detective. Yeah, I mean, in a series full of particularly useless Felix Leiters, this does stand out as the most useless of all of them. Norman Burton in this role, though, again, I feel like it's miscasting more than anything. He just doesn't look like he's in the CIA, and he doesn't act at all like he's a secret agent. He acts like he's a cab driver in a film noir film that he's just seen some weird murder on a street corner and now he's in this weird world of international espionage that's way over his head. He is particularly rubbish. But to return very briefly uh, to Tiffany Case, who we kind of glossed over a little bit, I do want to give Jill St. John a lot of credit in this role because I do think she convincingly plays Case as this not-so-small-time, this, you know, quite successful diamond smuggler who does have a lot of fun front and who is very brassy but actually i think she does a very interesting job of essentially creating a criminal who once she realizes what she's into isn't seduced to the side of good in the way that pussy galore is she's purely out for self-preservation she's not suddenly a good character but yeah again she's failed by the script i think she's a good character well played but completely ruined by everything that they have the character do yeah, I think she was originally going to play Plenty O'Toole, so that would have been a complete waste of her talent had she have got that one. It's interesting returning to the Las Vegas setting, Phil, uh, you mentioning it. I must go cards on the table again and say I absolutely hate Las Vegas. I think it's the worst place on God's earth. I think it's a stupid person's idea of what fun looks like, where you just lose all your money and there's gangsters and old school and reformed comedians all around. And so I think possibly part of my antipathy to this film is also the fact that so much of it happens in Vegas. And the car chase sequence in the middle of Vegas is great because it's the only car chase, I think, in cinema history that has a live audience. 
if you look behind the actual cars, everyone is stood lining all the pavements on the Vegas Strip, just watching the car chase because they couldn't clear the area at all. Yeah, that's a good point, actually, Adam. I was going to mention that in my cars and gadgets sequence, but yeah, it is ridiculous. You look at the, the sides on the, the sidewalks and the fact that everybody is literally just almost like it's a display sequence. You know, it's not, you'd, you'd expect in, in realism, you probably have a few people turning around as they're walking up the street, but you can literally see the producers just didn't have the ability to clear the crowds. So they just stood watching. It's just, you know, this is like a little display for them. It's, you know, it's great. They're loving it, but it just completely destroys the the magic of the film if that makes sense so it's there's no sort of illusion to the fact that bond's in a real car chase we get a prototype jw in this car sequence uh, and i'd much prefer jw himself to make an appearance uh, but i think my issue with the car chasers they're just i don't know i'll just i'll defer to you on the cars phil but they they just seem really boring the chasers and relatively pointless I think farcical is a better way of looking at it. I, I totally agree, Martin. I think they're, they're kind of added in as a, a almost like a last-minute plot point, really. And quite interesting as well that Guy Hamilton allegedly actually hated American cars. So he was more than happy for a lot of them to get destroyed. So obviously you see in the sequence where a lot of the police cars get written off where they crash into each other. But yeah, I'd agree. The actual setup of the car chase is not just the Mustang sequence, but also the moon buggy, which is completely ridiculous where we're meant to believe that somehow Sean Connery can just automatically work a moon buggy and just drive it through the set. I mean, how do you know that that's made of, you know, polystyrene or where it is when he drives through the set? That could have been made from reinforced concrete for all he knows. Well, I don't think it's fair to say Connery immediately knows how to use the moon buggy. He does spend a good 10 seconds pushing a load of random buttons and sending the arms off one way or the other before he finds the most obvious thing that would have powered it, which is the joystick. I do quite like the Vegas car chase, uh, and I like it for a couple of reasons. I don't think it's the greatest car chase in history, but I think there is an, an, an effort in it to actually choreograph a bullet-style chase where it's just on the roads. There are no crazy stunts apart from the infamous alleyway tilt, which, of course, he comes out the wrong way. But I actually think that the driving sequences in it are quite exciting, and I think they are generally quite good. And I think it works quite nicely for a couple of reasons. The first is that it's a good way of showing off Las Vegas itself, the strip outside of being in the hotels, which hadn't been seen a huge amount in films at this point. I was looking up a load of Vegas movies and really apart from Ocean's Eleven and a couple of other movies, the Rat Pack made in the 60s, we haven't seen Las Vegas on screen very much. So it's a great way actually of showing off to audiences who probably haven't been exactly what it looked like in Vegas. But that would have had huge visual impacts and excitement at the time. But also, I do love the fact that so many police cars get piled up because, of course, it starts a trend in Bond films of huge amounts of random cars just smashing into each other for no reason, which ultimately is parodied to perfect uh, levels by the Blues Brothers movie, the end sequence of that film, when it's about 100 police cars all piling on. It's absolutely hilarious. In terms of actually seeing the scenery of Las Vegas, I think they missed an opportunity. One, another scene that I had highlighted in my notes was where he's scaling the building, where he jumps on top of the lift, or should I say elevator, um, at the, on the outside of the other uh, hotel. Then he uses the contraption Mission Impossible style to get onto the roof. I think they missed, maybe they'd run out of budget by that stage, but I think they missed some opportunity for some death-defying shots off of the edge of the building. Yeah, it is, it is a disappointment that you don't see 
that much of Vegas from the rooftop. But again, Vegas then did not look like Vegas now. We're not going to see, you know, the MGM Grand and the New York, New York and all the rest of it. But we could at least have seen the Waving Cowboy. Everyone loves the Waving Cowboy. There is a great little fun fact trivia point for you. The RPM device that Q uses to trick the machines, that's the own well, that's the main device that Desmond Llewellyn once mentioned that he wished was real. You mean he went for that instead of the voice recording technology, which somehow brilliantly, instead of making your voice sound like someone else's down the other line of the phone, actually dubs your own voice for you as you're saying it. I mean that's an extraordinary gadget, isn't it? I mean, what is going on with that? Do they think we're so daft that we can't get that it's down the other end of the phone that their voice has been changed? Well, particularly in 1971 as well, the fact that, you know, washing machines are probably still quite advanced at this point and the fact that, you know, we're, we're still quite in a, a basic technical era, if we're being honest, and we've got this voice-altering technology. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the most ridiculous elements of things like Mission Impossible 2, obviously the John Woo film. It's It's kind of... it's kind of gadgets for the sake of being gadgets i mean you can't really see it working it i mean it is a great idea the fact that q's got a, a soldering iron and a few bits of circuit board and he's just kind of like bodging it together and and even you know blofeld isn't convinced to start with he's like have you got a cold i mean it's just it is just really silly it's how q manages to tune it to sound like bert saxby as well who we haven't really heard say anything at all up to this point in the film it's that machine is ridiculous that machine annoys me and the fact that q said oh i made this for my kids last christmas what are his kids doing with this machine at christmas who are his kids impersonating at christmas i've just got this great vision of like the q family at christmas because obviously that must insinuate that q is married to this sort of like frustrated you know wife that's they must be just fed up with him with all these random gadgets around the house just for like things for the kids like no but it's a rocket launcher come milk bottle do you think q's kids are there on christmas day sat at the dinner table and their mum's like, no one can eat until daddy's back from his shed. What's he doing in the shed, mommy? He's working on his voice machine. But it's Christmas Day. He has to finish his voice machine. No, you'll see, in a year's time, an agent will be in Las Vegas and he will need to very convincingly replicate the voice of a man called Bert Saxby to Blofeld, who we don't know is Blofeld in this office yet, but he'll need this machine, I tell you. Why does Q's children sound like Tiny Tim from the Muppets Christmas Carol? He's just put Tiny Tim's voice into the synthesizer, hasn't he? His kids love the Muppet Christmas Carol, even though it's not going to be made for another 23 years. Uh, so he thought, well, I'll just put the voice of Tiny Tim in. I feel sorry for Q's wife. She's got, she's got a whole fingerprint scanner and a wardrobe taking up a lot of space. <laughs> Want some Q's gadgets? have been used once he just takes them all home with him because you can't really use them again so he's just got a room which has all of these random things there's always like the attache case is just there and his wife's always taking it to school with like maybe she's a teacher and like her exercise books are in it and she keeps every morning opening up boom talcum explosion oh mrs q's brought the wrong briefcase again can we also point out Money Penny in this world is lacking a lot of tact and sensitivity because pretty much the only time we see her is when they've taken Peter Franks out of his car 
to capture him. And she then comes out with Bond's new Peter Frank's passport and makes a gag to him about bringing her back a diamond in a ring. This is an engagement gag. One film after his new wife's been murdered. That's not very good from Money Penny, is it? This isn't the penny that we know. That's incredibly insensitive. I think it's worse the fact that we don't even have any mention of Tracy at all. I mean, I know we've ch- kind of moved on to a different plot, but the fact that it's kind of, oh yeah, we've had this film two years previously where it's you know, a really emotive ending, but we'll just forget about it for this one. We'll just move on and try something completely different. I think Phil's just angry about Diana Rigg, really, isn't he? <laughs> she needs to yeah, be mentioned I, in all films. I never got over that, to be honest. Surely, though, you, you did manage to get over Diana Rigg the minute that you saw Bambi and Thumper in this film. In another one of the sequences I actually really like, purely because it's Sean Connery, the, the greatest of all the Bonds, being absolutely beaten to nothing by two quite slight gymnasts. I think this is a fantastic scene. It also opens up that world we've talked on before. What do all these minor characters do in their spare time when Bond isn't around? What have these two women, these two lethal sort of bodyguards, been doing with Willard White stuck in this penthouse for two years or five years or however long they've been holding him there? Because like, this is what always confused me with Bambi and Thumper. Who have actually hired them? Because is it Blofeld that's hired them to watch over Willard White? Or is it Willard White's own protection? It doesn't make any sense. They're just sort of randomly there to give Bond a punch in the stomach, effectively, and then get half drowned. I mean, they're not that great as bodyguards if Bond could easily outpower them in a swimming pool and then try and drown them. It's just, they just don't make any sense. That is the one problem with the scene, the fact that they've done this brilliant action sequence of both of them teaming up and managing to absolutely best Bond in every sense. And then he's just very easily able to shove their heads underwater when they're all in the pool and therefore overcome them. It's such a shame that he doesn't use his superior intelligence and his surroundings to beat them as he has done with previous villains and that it does ultimately end up with, well, I'm Sean Connery and I can't be beaten up by two goals, so I'm just going to be more powerful than you. But I do still like this as an action sequence. I like the Peter Franks fight. I think it's so unusual. And it feels properly vicious as well. Like it's really bone crunching. And he is sent flying all over the place. But I do actually enjoy this. I think the fist fight sequences, at least in this film, this one and the elevator fight with Franks, are some saving graces. Yeah, it goes. I think the action in that scene is quite good up until they get into the pool, obviously. And uh, obviously we get uh, good old Felix just waiting behind for no apparent reason. I'll just wait in the car. Yeah, I'm going to give you 10 minutes, James. You just go up there and you just see if this has turned into Catherine Hepburn for some strange reason. You just go up to the penthouse up there and I'll follow you later. How does he actually get up there as well? Because of the fact that it's like on a cliff edge. So how does he just like wander up on a little path? It's just you don't ever see him Yeah, I think so, yeah. I think it's just a little pathway for sure. And to answer your question, I think Blofeld must have hired them to keep Willard White locked in that little house. I don't know what the job advert would have been for that and and whether specifically it was advertising for two people who can both fight but also be quite alluring and keep Willard White occupied for that length of time, shall we say. I don't know quite how you go about finding them. Maybe Jaws was busy at this point. We know Jaws is an assassin for hire, uh, but he was just off doing something else at this stage. I mean, I imagine any kind of sort of spectre hiring regime must be a little bit unusual. I mean, you can't really imagine them going to Indeed or to, you know, um, Read.com or anything like that and going on the job sites and saying, 
henchmen for hire and things like that. It wouldn't, it wouldn't really go down that way of thinking. Um, so I'm not really sure what their hiring process or indeed firing process would be. I think I think it's, as we've mentioned in previous episodes, the fact that they've got their own extermination branch. You get the feeling that Bambi and Thumper probably weren't long for this world. They'd have probably been executed after, um, you know, dealing out Blofeld's wishes. One interesting little point I wanted to mention about this film is that it's the last time up until Spectre in 2015 that the actual Spectre organisation is mentioned. So from this point onwards, um, the official franchise doesn't mention it again until the 2015 film, where, of course, we're reintroduced to Blofeld um, with Christoph Waltz. I think that this film really feels the need to use Blofeld a lot, doesn't it, with the, the clones? I don't. Why doesn't he just make a couple more clones as bodyguards for Willard White? Because <laughs> he seems to he doesn't seem to care about the clones being killed either, does he? <laughs> Like, why is he going to all the trouble of making them if he's just happy for Bond to just kill them all? Well, who's volunteering as well? The fact that there's just these random people that are like, yeah, I'll be your clone, Blofeld. I don't mind. I'll have this painful plastic surgery and the, the very high chance of death in implausible fashion just so you can out your entire scheme. It's just... And, and what they must get some sort of complex where they think, well, hang on, am I Blofeld? Are you Blofeld? Who's, who's the real Blofeld here? I can't remember. The weird thing for me about the doubles is the fact that when Bond does his mountaineering outside the White House and breaks into the penthouse suite, two of the Blofelds are both there. Why has he got his own double just there, present? Is he just having conversations with himself? Is there some weird chess game? that Because the real, not the real Blofeld, the, the less fake Blofeld thought he'd get lonely. So he thought, well, I'll have a double of myself here just to like pass the time. Shall I be mother Blofeld? Yes, Blofeld. Sugar Blofeld, yes. Two lumps for me, Blofeld. Splash of milk, Blofeld, yes. Oh, a little bit more than that, Blofeld. Would you like a Bourbon, Blofeld? Yes, I'd like a custard cream, Blofeld. Do you think it's like that? This, which is, this is, have you seen the fake cat, Blofeld? No, I think you had him, Blofeld. I just think they get into like random petty arguments about ridiculous matters. Like, Did you take the bins out, Blofeld? No, it's your turn this week, Blofeld. And can we just point out as well, probably the stupidest point of the film, I know there's a lot of ridiculous moments, why does he dress as a like 70-year-old woman to escape? Why doesn't he just, you know, dress as like a, I don't know, just a chauffeur or something like that, or, a, you know, anything? Why? What was the purpose of him dressing as an old woman to just wander through the, the casino towards the end? Well, that's because he's played by Charles Gray, and Charles Gray must do something very camp in every single film that he's in. That's the reason, no other. It's great that they go to the trouble of cloning the cats as well. They've, they've not just got two Blofelds, they've each got their own cat. Every Blofeld has to come with his own cat. Maybe that's, you can only apply if you have your own white Persian cat, because they'll go to all the expense of actually transforming you with plastic surgery, but they won't splash out on a cat for you. You bring your own cat. It's B-Y-O-C. Yeah, I presume the cats are not cloned. They just bought some more Persian cats, didn't they? <laughs> the cat's not going under the knife, under that mashed potato. Right idea, Mr. Bob. 
Can I very briefly return us to the finale sequence on Blofeld slash Willard White's Baja oil rig? Is this one of Bond's most ridiculous and useless plans of attack probably ever? I mean, we talked a little bit with You Only Live Twice, the fact that he's got two astronauts there that decides that he himself is going to try and smuggle his way onto the spaceship, despite the fact that he's not going to have a clue what to do while he's on it. The fact that he has got a cassette tape duplicate with him, which he intends to switch for the satellite guided tape, but it's A, hidden within the lining of his suit, so he's going to have to somehow get this out of his jacket at some point while he's on the rig, but also the fact that that control room is very well watched, and as this is the tape that controls everything, surely everyone's going to have their eye on it. At what point in time did Bond genuinely think he'd be able to switch these tapes over? Yeah, it's a really unusual finishing sequence. Also, the fact that when he is dropped into the ocean, he's in this sort of primitive Zorb ball, but there's no like It's not see-through, so it's, it's a completely greyed-out ball. So how the hell does he know where to go to be able to get to the, the gantry point or to the to the landing point for the actual rig? He'd just be sort of paddling around in the middle of the sea. It's just it's bizarre that it can just easily float towards the, the landing point and that obviously is then escorted out up to the gantry. Well, I don't know if you, either of you have ever tried Zorbing, but it's actually really difficult and really physically very exhausting. And they drop that Zorb ball quite a long way away from the oil rig. So the fact that Connery then gets out of it and he's not a sweaty, panting wreck is always a little bit suspect. I'm like, you wouldn't be that casual and that blasé having just Zorbed about half a mile across choppy waters to get to this thing. That's ridiculous. Yeah, I don't want to see his toupee on the floor of the Zorb. <laughs> Or at least him having to wring it out somewhere because it's so drenched in Connery's sweat that it's just it's unwearable at this point. We do have, I think, one of my favourite comedy shots in the entire Bond franchise when Tiffany's trying to switch the tapes for the second time. And there is literally a massive zoom in to her bikini bottoms where the outline of the tape cassette is stood out against it. We've talked a little bit about this being carry-on Bond. That is probably the most carry-on moment, I think, in any Bond film. Accompanied by Charles Gray's, we're showing rather more cheek than usual today, Tiffany. I think the only character trait that was enjoyable in that final scene was when he tells Dr. Metz to get back to his station and then very calmly turns around and walks up the stairs into his little escape pod. Of course, afterwards it gets ridiculous, but I quite like that little a bit of character development. Yeah, you're right. That's a lovely moment from Charles Gray. That's probably his best moment in the entire film. Uh, apart from when he's just sat in the back of the cabin drag. He, he really is ill. So like we say, with nothing against Charles Gray. Love him as an actor. Love him in You Only Live Twice. He's not Blofeld, and he's very ill-served by this one. You're not thinking that. I sure am, boy. Ever heard of Evil Knievel? Neither have I, actually. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the car chasers, Phil. So what other information do we have on cars and gadgets? 
let's be honest, we all know what I'm going to start with this week for the actual cars and gadgets sequence. We all know it's a 1971 Ford Mustang Mach 1, and it has to feature in possibly one of the most infamous errors in cinematic history. Of course, when the car chase is occurring in Las Vegas, we see the proposed escape route is down a very narrow alleyway that becomes a dead end. Uh, fake Sheriff J.W. Pepper is obviously in pursuit of said uh, Bond and Tiffany. Now, the issue they had was obviously the continuity area, if people aren't aware, was basically the car went up onto two wheels on its right-hand side, so on its right wheels. It then exits towards the end of the shot on its left-hand side, so on its left two wheels, and then drops back down onto its wheels. Now, obviously, this is the wrong way to do it so what the production team had they had a couple of options to be able to get out of this error they could have either flipped the image which is actually still used today by a lot of car manufacturers for their car advertising so basically what that means is you literally do it back to front so it's often used with car manufacturers doing right hand to left hand drive cars so also you flip the car so it doesn't look like it's the wrong side of the steering wheel the trouble they had with this was once you flip the image on the exit, there's a lot of the lights from the casino. So obviously the casino lights and the lettering, what if you'd have done the flipping of the image, it would have looked the wrong way. So casino would have gone backwards. So that was out as an option. Secondly, they could have just cut the entire sequence altogether and just put it as, you know, the, the scene where they're in the car park could have been the main chase. For whatever reason, they decided that they wanted it to be basically where mid-sequence the car would be on its right hand side and then magically flip onto its left hand side as we see in the film where obviously Tiffany goes whoa and it just goes back over which is a very obvious and b ridiculous let's be honest I thought I'd just go we do this every week so I just thought I'd go through a few of the kind of vital stats of the Mustangs so by this point, one of the most recognized Mustangs ever made and one of the most popular, the Mach 1. In this case, it was the 351 Fastback, so that referred to the engine size, a 5.8 litre, 351 cubic inch V8. Um, one of the most popular versions of the Mustang ever made, produced approximately 285 brake horsepower, 370 foot-pounds of torque. Top speed wasn't that much, probably maximum of 130 mile an hour, so not the fastest car we've seen so far. But in terms of the Vegas chase, it comes in its own because it helps Bond and Tiffany to escape the clutches of the police force. Just to go back to a few other cars as well. Interestingly, we see that Blofeld's car that he uses to escape is the same Mercedes 600 Grocer that we see in homage to Secret Service. So it's quite an interesting nod back to that car. And of course, I think we should also mention the Moon Buggy, which was actually custom made for the film now interestingly sean connery was so enamored by this vehicle that although it was on display for many years afterwards in vegas he actually bought it for his own private collection in 2004 so this is still owned by connery we've already kind of gone on to a lot of the um, the gadgets that we use as well so obviously the wardrobe fingerprint scanner which is rather silly in its application the piton grappling hook gun which is used quite effectively by bond to swing across the White House so we can get to the roof. Again, the electromagnetic RPM controller that was the only Q gadget that Desmond Llewellyn wished he'd actually owned. Um, and of course, the aquasorbing device, which was used for Bond at the oil rig sequence. But that's just a very short run through the cars and gadgets as we see them in the film, um, and just a little kind of potted history of the cars that are used. Why don't you acquaint yourself with manuals? You'll be able to shoot through that in a couple of hours. 
seconds, Q. Okay, thanks a lot, Phil. And uh, we'll move on now to our next segment, uh, taking a look at the difference between the film and the novel. Uh, so over to Adam by the book 007. Thank you very much. So the novel Diamonds Are Forever. Now, this is not like Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which was a pretty much chapter by chapter, page by page, very faithful adaptation. This is much closer to what the producers did with You Only Live Twice, i.e. the setup and a lot of the characters and some of the settings have remained the same. But in general, the overall plot has been quite radically altered. Obviously, in the film's case, this is to work Blofeld and Spectre into the storyline, which is weird because in Fleming's novel, this is his fourth book and his first one in which the villain is not Smirsch, the Russian intelligence services, his version of the KGB. But in fact, the American Mafia in the form of the Spangled Mob, headed up by America's answer to the Cray brothers, Jack and Serafimo Spang. Now, this is a really interesting and good novel. Ian Fleming got very, very uh, obsessed with diamond smuggling. He was inspired by a Sunday Times article about a ring that was originating from Sierra Leone. And indeed, he soon after Diamonds Are Forever, publishes a lot of his research in a non-fiction book called The Diamond Smugglers. So he really did do a lot of research and a lot of background reading into how diamond smuggling actually works in order to convincingly drop James Bond into a very different world of international espionage and criminality than we'd seen thus far in the books. Now, where the book is similar to the film is in the actual makeup of the smuggling chain. It originates from Sierra Leone as opposed to South Africa, but beyond that, the mechanics are very similar. Bond poses as Peter Franks to meet Tiffany Case. His contact in America is Shady Tree. Uh, Felix Leiter, who at this point in the novels is with the Pinkerton's private detectives, is on hand in America to help him out. And we also have Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, who have been hired by the Spang brothers to shut down the pipeline uh, as and when they need to. And they come to the same or a similar end, I should say, as they do in the film, i.e., they attempt to assassinate Bond and Tiffany Case on the cruise ship home. Uh, it's not played for laughs in the novel. Bond kills them and makes it look like a crime of passion between the two gay hitmen. But it's once we get to America that the actual plot of the novel becomes very different. James Bond decides to foil his own payoff in order to get higher up the chain. So we start out in New York where he's supposed to put a big bet on a horse race and he fixes it with lighter for the wrong horse to win which means Shady Tree then has to take him to Las Vegas, where he is given his payoff as Peter Franks for smuggling the diamonds uh, at the uh, gaming tables. Bond being Bond, he starts gaming too much and is captured by one of the Spang brothers, Serafimo Spang, and taken to a place called, ironically, Specterville, which is an old Wild West ghost town. Bond is tortured in Specterville, but escapes with Tiffany Case on a train, during which pursuit he kills Serafimo Spang. And we actually end the book where the film begins, i.e. with Bond going to the start of the pipeline in Sierra Leone, where he executes the other Spang brother, Jack Spang, by blowing up his helicopter. This in the film, of course, is Mr. Winton, Mr. Kidd, destroying Dr. Tynan, one of the early smugglers in the chain, blowing up his helicopter. Now, for me, the most fascinating difference, though, is in the character of Tiffany Case. She's played much more seriously in the novel. And Felix Leiter reveals that she was the victim when a teenager of a really awful sexual assault. And this has given a lifelong mistrust and hatred of men, which of course, Bond being Bond, uh, manages through simply being charming and actually by being quite tender and paternal to her, manages to 
relieve in her, I guess. And towards the end of the novel, they've gone to London together and Tiffany actually moves into Bond's apartment. And there's a suggestion that she would like him to propose to her, which the film pays tribute to in the scene at the very end when Tiffany is alluding to the fact that she'd like to maybe propose to him. But the character of Tiffany Case is much closer to Bond and a much more fragile and tragic character. Certainly not the brassy American uh, that uh, Jill St. John plays Tiffany as in the film. Okay, thanks a lot for that, uh, Adam. Certainly would have been a, a very different film, perhaps a better one as well, if, uh, if we'd have had some more of those plot points uh, and characters in the, uh, the actual movie. Okay, so uh, we'll move on now to uh, my segment, which is That's Not Okay Anymore. Now, we've mentioned that this film is a very tongue-in-cheek adaptation, a very camp adaptation of the novel. Um, and but So by definition, there aren't really any serious infringements of political correctness. Uh, but I guess many people might cite Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd as being a potentially homophobic portrayal of those characters. However, having watched the film, I'm not so sure. It'd be interesting to get your views, Adam and Phil. Not really much that you can pinpoint in way of what actually happens on screen that you could say is homophobic, but uh, I don't know what uh, what were your feelings on those two characters. Yeah, I think to the point, it hasn't really aged well in that sense. I mean, I think they're, they're kind of played for laughs in a way. I, I think it's it's not a great portrayal, I'd say. I'm not sure I'd agree specifically that they're played for laughs. I think they are played with an element of weirdness and the surreal. And uh, Martin, you very correctly mentioned earlier that Bruce Glover gets that real sense of macabre and a kind of plays Mr. Wint as a sinister effete, as it were. But I don't think there's any homophobia in there. I mean, they're gay specifically in the novels. And we should actually give them credit for being the first outwardly and explicitly gay characters to feature in a Bond film, albeit as the hired assassins. This is, I guess, a sense, a step forward in that these two characters are outwardly gay and are celebratory of the fact that they're gay and, and actually have a joke on that. Mr. Uh, Kidd has that fun line on the plane when he says, Miss Case certainly is attractive, you know, for a woman. But yeah, I think it's also quite brave that they kept it in simply because of the fact, I think, was it 1967 that the UK um, legalized homosexuality? Obviously the fact before that it had been illegal to be helps obviously there were a lot of people that were kind of in hiding almost so the fact that it's kind of a mainstream film that addresses these you know quite strong characters is quite brave of of the filmmakers really i mean obviously the the narrative follows that but i think it was quite a brave decision for them to do that and i think you know putter smith and bruce glover the fact that they they do bring a lot to the role i think i think they are probably unfairly vilified in a way yeah and uh, in terms of uh, sexism as well the female characters we've mentioned, Lana Wood. Her char- Apparently, I did read that the filmmakers wanted it to be some kind of commentary on American society and commentary on women at the time. But I guess you would have to have that character do a bit more for it to actually be a substantial commentary on anything rather than what we get. Yeah, that's not an excuse that would ever hold water anymore, is it? All oh, my female characters are one-dimensional and essentially sexual objects because that's how society views them. No, by creating strong female characters who are independent of, you know, the male characters who are strong-willed in their own right would obviously be a far better way of addressing that. Uh, yeah, and then finally we get Shady Tree and his acorns, some ridiculous and dodgy gags from his stand-up set. 
Uh, although by that point in the film, I wasn't paying much attention, so I didn't actually listen very closely to his gags. I don't know if you caught them, Adam. Oh, yeah, definitely. The one about Howard Hughes's, not Howard Hughes, the, the film's one, Willard White. Willard White's more difficult to find than a virgin in a maternity ward. Yeah, I knew they were bad. I just didn't write them down. <laughs> yeah, unreconstructed, very much the word for a Shady Trees act, I think. No, 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 stop getting Bond wrong! Stop getting Bond wrong! Okay, so that brings us to our final part of the show, the quiz. So it's over to Adam. Thank you very much, Martin. Yes, I thought we'd try something a bit different again for the quiz this week, and we would play a game I've called Connery Fortunes. So this is uh, essentially inspired by the fact that this is Sean Connery's last official James Bond film. The six Bond films he did are still uh, adjusted for inflation amongst the highest grossing of all Connery's films. So I want to see if either of you, or between you, can name the next six highest grossing Sean Connery films ever in which he doesn't play James Bond. So here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to first flip a coin to see who gets control. So Martin, heads or tails? I'll go heads. I'm afraid... It's Tails. So, Phil, you start with control. Now, it's just like Family Fortunes. You have to name the six films starring Sean Connery, which are the highest grossing of all time at the box office, in which he doesn't play James Bond. You have three lives. If you lose all three of your lives, it passes to your opponent. And if they can name one of the films that you miss, then they win the quiz. Now, because you have control, you can decide whether you want to play or whether you're going to pass to Martin. Well, the trouble is, I'm trying to think of six Sean Connery films that aren't bomb. I'm, I'm, I've got a couple. So, I mean, I think, Martin, you're probably heads on to win this one this week because I'm struggling. But I'll give it a go of playing first, I think. OK, you're going to play very good. So we're looking for the six. So please name your first film. The Rock. Yeah, that's correct. That's number two. His second highest grossing movie outside of the Bond movies with 690 million. Okay, The Hunt for Red October. Correct again. That is his fourth highest grossing non-Bond film, $431 million worldwide. Uh, The Man Who Would Be King. Our survey says... (coughs) So that is one life gone, two lives remaining, four movies still to go. Oh, God. There's there's loads of films he's been on. I'm trying to think what would be his biggest ones. Um, Entrapment is correct. His fifth highest grossing non-Bond film, $382 million worldwide. So three down, three to go, two lives remain. Oh, God. Uh, Was it the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen or the League of... Correct again, his sixth highest grossing non-Bond film, $270 million. So you've only two left to get, two lives remaining. Well, I'm trying to remember, he was in one of the Indiana Jones films. Was it Indiana Jones and the... Indiana... Oh, I can't remember what it's called. This is torture. Um, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Our survey says, eh, eh. so one life remaining, two still to fill. It passes to Martin if you lose another life. See, I don't want to go for another Indiana Jones one because I can't remember what it is. Oh, God, I can't think. 
See, there will be, be people listening thinking, well, there's obvious ones that I've completely missed and I just can't think what his highest gross in one of all time will be, but it's... Excalibur, was he in that? Our survey says, and no, he was not in Excalibur. That was Richard Harris. So your three lives are gone, which means Martin has a chance to steal the quiz if you can name either Sean Connery's highest grossing or third highest grossing non-Bond film. Well, I wasn't happy when Phil went along the Indiana Jones route, and I'm so glad that he didn't mention it, but I'm pretty sure Connery was in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He's correct. That was his highest grossing non-Bond film. Phil, you were so close. I'm sure people would have been shouting it at the radio. This may shock you. I've never seen any of the Indiana Jones films at all, so I've only seen clips of them. You've never seen the Indiana Jones films? No, I've never been interested in them. They're like some of the greatest action films of all time, apart from James Bond. Well, Phil missed the top answer and, and gave you everything you needed to get there, Martin. Congratulations. Did you know what that other film would have been? His third highest grossing movie, non-Bond. No, that's why I was happy Phil went for the wrong Indiana Jones, because I had no idea outside of it. It's tricky-ish, but a famous one. Uh, it was the one he won his Oscar for, The Untouchables. That was number three, $434 million. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade got $1.08 billion worldwide adjusted. So it's number one outside Bond with a bullet. But Martin, that means you have won the quiz, which means you get to pick our outro song. Well, there's only one option available in my eyes. Last week, we had Blofeld Telly Savalas with his number one hit of If... And we have to go with Blofeld again. We have to have Charles Gray in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, The Time Warp. Great choice. Absolutely fantastic choice. Just a jump to the left. Okay, so <laughs> thanks everyone for joining us for episode number seven. That was Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, next week, we finally get on to a Roger Moore film. We are Roger Moore's cubbyhole, and we will be back with Live and Let Die. So uh, thanks, everyone. Do try and give us a like and follow on our social media accounts where you can find us, Roger Moore's Cubbyhole or More Cubby on Twitter. So uh, thanks, everyone, for joining. Thanks for listening. I was Martin. I was Adam. And I was Phil. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to keep control. Just a jump to the left. Put your hands on your hips. Let's do the time warp again. It's just a jump to the left. You put your hands on your head.